Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and welcome to Failures of Radical Feminism at the United Nations. Pro-life women respond. We're thrilled to have you with us today. Before our program begins, we'd like to share some tips for optimizing your experience. First, we'll be sharing the recording of today's program with you following the event. So if you want to watch it again, share it with a friend, or jot something down from the slides, you'll have the recording to do so. Next, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Please submit your questions throughout this event in the questions box on your screen. Be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, or where you're tuning in from. We'll get to as many of your questions as possible later on. Finally, your microphone is muted for this event. I now invite Grace Melton to turn on her webcam and take it away. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Grace Melton, and I'm the Heritage Foundation Senior Associate for Social Issues at the United Nations. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Failures of Radical Feminism at the United Nations, Pro-Life Women Respond. We have a great program lined up for you this afternoon, and I'm delighted to invite Dr. Charmaine Yost, Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation to kick off our program. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being here with us today. We have a really, really remarkable turnout, and this continues to encourage us, particularly given the fact that we are all, we are all still doing these virtual events. And so thank you for taking the time to be with us. It's really kind of amazing to me that it's actually been 25 years now since the opening of the UN's fourth World Con Congress on Women. That event was attended by 20,000 women from 189 countries. And that's where first our former first lady, Hillary Clinton, famously declared women's rights are human's rights. Now, I think it's really important for us, I know represented here on this call, that we all agree with the foundational statement that women uh, deserve equality. And that's why we're here today to talk about how that statement gets implemented throughout uh, public policy. What a lot of people don't realize about how consequential the Beijing conference was, was the fact that it operationalized the feminist movement's interpretation of what women's rights means. The Beijing platform for action that came out of that event was over 200 pages long. And it was a very comprehensive plan to achieve their vision of equality for women. President Bill Clinton, then after the event, immediately established within every single agency of the federal government a bureau to ensure that the agenda was being implemented throughout the government. So those bureaus still exist and they're still enforcing the feminist agenda. I started my career here in Washington, D.C. in presidential personnel in the Reagan White House. And something that we talked about all the time was personnel is policy. And that's what you see with something like this, is that by spreading out throughout the government, they're able to implement an agenda very effectively. And it wasn't just in the American government, it was also in the UN, of course, and they immediately began implementing the Beijing plan around the world. Most importantly, that Beijing blueprint blueprint is still being used to spread the UN's version of gender equality. Well, this forum today is particularly important to me as a woman and as a mother of three daughters, the concerns 
expressed through the Beijing conference are very much my concerns. I believe, deeply believe in women's equality as human beings. But the agenda of the left that has been defined as women's rights is a corruption of that vision. I'm also personally vested in the legacy of the Beijing blueprint because my mother, Dr. Janice Shaw Krauss, trained a 10 member Beijing team and worked with them producing a daily bulletin for 1500 media outlets throughout the conference. And of course, most importantly of all, I think it's really, really kind of remarkable that we are able to do this today um, on this very day when we're seeing the, um, the moving forward of the remarkable promotion of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court of the United States. And we're seeing the corruption of a vision of women's equality play out in the reaction to that announcement. The spectacle of seeing left-wing feminists question whether or not Judge Barrett has appropriate childcare for her seven children is absolutely stupefying. Or the assertion that her adoption of two children born in Haiti represents cultural appropriation. There is an entirely different agenda going on here, hiding behind the beautiful rhetoric of support for women's accomplishment that we hear described as the goals of feminism. We categorically reject the idea that abortion is necessary for women to achieve or to have meaningful, productive, and successful lives. In fact, abortion has caused tremendous harm to women and girls worldwide, including the millions of baby girls who have been victims of sex selection abortion. Our panelists today are going to unpack all of these ideas and they're going to address the vast chasm between what is so frequently defined as a women's agenda and what a real vision of women's equality would look like. There's a very big difference between our conservative view of women's empowerment and the one-dimensional view of women's needs that's presented by the Beijing view. Tragically, that destructive view has now matured to the point, point of permeating so much of worldwide thought and continues to be promoted as the only way that women can lead successful lives. As pro-life conservative women, we call on world leaders and the UN to advance policies that meet women's real needs, such as education, medicine, economic empowerment, and safety for their children and families. We call on world leaders and the UN to respect the religious diversity of women here and respect the cultural traditions of women in the developing countries. So, with all of that, thank you again so much for being here and being with us. And we are very much looking forward to your participation in the Q&A after the, our panel. Grace, thank you for now introducing our panelists. Thank you, Charmaine. I'd like to invite our panelists to now join me on screen as I tell you a bit about them. Valerie Huber is the US Special Representative for Global Women's Health. She serves within the US Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Secretary an Office of Global Affairs, which is the office that leads coordination efforts for global health diplomacy. Ms. Huber also serves as principal delegate for the Organization of American States Inter-American Commission of Women, the only hemispheric policy forum on women's rights and equality in the Americas. Sister Deirdre Byrne is an active missionary sister and superior of her community, the Little Workers of the Sacred Hearts in Washington, DC. She is double board certified in family medicine and general surgery, and her apostolate has been performing overseas medical missionary surgery and providing free medical care for the poor and uninsured. Sister Didi also retired with the rank of Colonel from the United States Army after 29 years of service in the military. Anne Mutave Kiyoko is the campaign's director of Citizen Go Africa. She's also the co-founder of African Organization for the Family and a member of the board of the Kenyan Conference of Catholic Bishops Family Life Commission. She's joining us today from Nairobi, Kenya. Finally, we have Dr. Rebecca Ose, who's the director of research for the Center for Family and Human Rights in Washington, DC. 
She holds a doctorate in genetics and molecular biology from Emory University. Her research focus areas include global maternal and child health and family planning. I've asked each of our panelists to give some brief remarks and then we'll have more of a conversation. So let's begin with Dr. Rebecca Ose. Thank you so much, Grace. It's great to be here with all of you. My organization, CFAM, was founded in the wake of the 1995 Beijing Women's Conference, as well as the Conference on Population and Development the previous year in Cairo. During these conferences, radical feminists made a concerted attempt to impose an international human right to abortion on the world. For the first time, abortion entered UN policy under the language of sexual and reproductive health and reproductive rights. According to the consensus reached at Cairo and Beijing, there is no agreed human right to abortion, and there are important caveats, such as abortion should never be promoted as a method of family planning. Reproductive health only included abortion where legal, and its legality was for national governments to determine. For those of us who believe that all human life deserves protection, this obviously falls short, since it fails to protect the unborn in cases where abortion is legal. But there's also another problem. For a quarter century, UN agencies have been promoting abortion under the reproductive health and reproductive rights agenda, despite this being outside their mandates and in violation of the consensus that was reached by member governments back in the 90s. Bodies like the World Health Organization have insisted that so-called safe abortion is the only remedy for women dying from unsafe abortions. Human rights mechanisms, often relying on independent and unaccountable special experts, have interpreted a right to abortion in binding human rights treaties, despite the fact that no obligation exists and it never would have been agreed to by member nations when the treaty texts were first negotiated. Unfortunately, these fringe views from UN human rights experts are then quoted and repeated by other agencies within the UN and promoted by outside pro-abortion organizations and sometimes even cited by activist courts within countries. Meanwhile, organizations like UN Women and the UN Population Fund operating with billion dollar budgets programmatically and systematically lobby governments to liberalize their abortion laws. The conferences at Cairo and Beijing generated entire new categories of international aid, including this new emphasis on reproductive health, which often stands as a euphemism for abortion at both the international and country level. But one important recent development is that some countries, including the United States, have started pushing back on the radical abortion agenda at the UN by opposing the euphemistic reproductive health language in resolutions. And this is key because these resolutions are not binding on nations, but they are binding on the UN system and where the language points, money and resources follow. Most recently, the UN's response to the coronavirus pandemic was to classify abortion as essential and the World Health Organization urged countries to remove restrictions and barriers to do-it-yourself abortions with pills at home. And unfortunately, just this week, the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, sent out a tweet in honor of International Safe Abortion Day saying, my body, my choice, my rights. These things were left out of the agenda at Beijing because UN member governments did not agree to them. But agreement or not, the UN continues to push them aggressively, particularly on poorer countries that rely heavily on the UN agencies for aid. 25 years later, we hear about the unfinished business of Beijing. For many, that means realizing the goal of ensuring that all women and girls receive education, health care, and opportunities to succeed and to contribute to society in the manner of their choosing. But for many of the radical feminists, the ones who spearheaded the conference in 1995, the unfinished business means all the controversial things that they were unable to get into the official agenda in the first place, like a right to abortion and a concept of gender that goes beyond male and female. The radicals may have failed in 1995, but the fight is far from over. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Anne, would you like to give your remarks now? Of course, Grace. Greetings from Nairobi here in Kenya. 
Thank you, Heritage Foundation, for putting together this virtual conference that has come to be very important for me as an African woman whose day-to-day -day work is to run petitions to defend life, family, and liberty across Africa, those in the globe. Africa as a continent has 54 countries. Out of this, only South Africa, that is only one country, South Africa has expressed laws allowing abortion on demand. Africa is very diversified from the native languages we speak to our culture, geographical distribution, and even how we worship. But one thing is for sure, we are united when it comes to being pro-life and pro-family. This though does not sit well with a number of cultural imperialists who are after overturning this very beautiful culture of life we, are, we enjoy down here. The culture that celebrates every newborn baby in the family. A baby here is considered a blessing. Every year in the previous couple of years, I have had the privilege to represent the African women at a number of United Nations conferences. For example, the Commission on the Status of Women, that is CSW, and the Commission on the Population Development, that is CPD. It is very expensive to travel to the United Nations in New York. That is why I use the word privilege, a word that is not so familiar with so many of the folks I represent, the African women, especially those who are in the villages. When I'm in these United Nations meetings, I'm always sad and shocked to see the level of misrepresentation in the conference rooms. From one conference room to the other, misguided feminists always propose abortion, sexualization of our children, contraception, and even gender, gender ideology as what Africa needs. UN agencies and Western countries, especially Denmark, Netherlands, and the Nordics, like to select and train African youth as spokespeople for their agendas, fly them to the United Nations, pay for their food and hotels, and say they represent African perspectives. Again, it's the issue of privilege and who chooses who gets what to be on the table and how some of the colonialism is happening here in Africa. How I wish we could ferry all the African women to these conferences because women in Malawi, an East African country, which is currently under pressure from the United Nations agencies to legalize abortion, will tell the UN that they what they want is electricity, for instance. A woman in my village here in Kenya will ask United Nations to prioritize equipping hospitals in the country with modern life-saving medical equipment. A woman in Uganda will ask the United Nations to prioritize proper roads so that they can be able to sell their farm products for them to earn a living. Well, a woman from Ghana, another African country, would request for well-built schools. All these are shared concerns from African women, which should form the priority of UNFPA, UNESCO, UNICEF, World Health Organization, claim by the field, and every other agency that seeks to serve the interests of African women. We are experiencing a lot of pressure right now to legalize abortion across African countries. It is a real scramble for Africa. It is important to note that this has been received with a lot of resistance because this is not what we want here in Africa. Which African woman wants to kill their unborn baby? My question still remains, will United Nations ever get African priorities correct? Thank you.
Thank you, Ann. Sister Didi, I'd like to turn it over to you. Thanks, Grace. Um, and thank you, Heritage Foundation, for the invitation to speak today on my experience as a general surgeon working in far off places. My name is Sister Didi, and I'm a general surgeon, and I've had the opportunity to work in some uh, unusual places, Sudan's Nuba Mountains, Kenya, all throughout Kenya. In the military, I was in Afghanistan, and as a missionary, I've been to Iraq. I worked a lot in the Palestinian territories in the Middle East. Haiti is sort of our, our uh, present mission and here in the United States. Many of these places are war-torn, uh, the Nuba Mountains, Iraq, Sudan. And despite the daily difficulties my patients were faced with, they never desired, I never had the experience that they wanted to desire that or terminate pregnancy or to contracept. In fact, one of the greatest joys, as Anne was saying, was to have children. The more children, the more they're blessed. And they, they would do anything to save the life of their child. I would have patients walking for days. I mean, they don't have public transportation, so they'd be walking by foot with a sick child in their arms. Uh, the, the place where I really witnessed the tragedy of abortions is quite honestly here in Los Estados Unidos. Um, and I have a side minister, I'm a general surgeon, so uh, I don't really do a lot of the, the OB thing, but I do have a side ministry called Abortion Pill Reversal. It's um, been several years now. We, it's an international and a national organization in which women who have taken the RU-495 uh, have, um, or it's whatever the RU pill is, um, to kill their baby. Uh, we, can, we have 72 hours to basically reverse that. If we, we give them high dose progesterone, which is a natural hormone, and I, we, we see them uh, pretty quickly do another ultrasound. And many of the girls that I would take care of here in the States would say, you know, I went into the clinics pro-choice and I left pro-life because they didn't give me a choice. They told me I was young, I was single, I was without um, any job, and pregnant, so therefore I must terminate my pregnancy. So we, um, we, I believe that the biggest effort for many of these countries is just to support the efforts, as mentioned earlier, in supporting them with the with pro-life issues, with food, education, and not destruction of the child, but to enhance them and their families. And we, I believe, personally, we're more impoverished here in the United States than in other countries. We can learn so much from our brothers and sisters in, in Africa and elsewhere because they have, they have the richness of family life where we seem, as mentioned, you'll see the piranhas going after Amy Homie Barrett and because God forbid that she has seven children and is pro-life. So anyhow, that's it. Thank you, Grace, for pulling me in and I'm, I feel honored to be with all these really wonderful people that I always have admired from afar. So thank you very much and God bless you all. Thank you, sister. Valerie, would you please tell us a bit about what the U.S. is doing in your efforts there? Thank you. Yes, I'd be delighted to do so. Good afternoon, everyone. And it is such a pleasure to join the esteemed colleagues on today's panel um, and thank you. Heritage Foundation for inviting us to be part of this event. Today, I'm here to reaffirm that every woman, every human being, born and unborn, has a God-given right to life. 
This is the position of the Trump administration, and it has been since day one. It is not glib to pronounce President Trump the most pro-life president in recent history. President Trump is advancing a culture of life in our nation and around the world. Within days of taking office, the president signed an executive order to protect taxpayer dollars from subsidizing abortion. Called Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance, this executive order required all foreign NGOs that receive U.S. global health assistance to focus on promoting health, not abortion. If they receive any U.S. taxpayer dollars for global health assistance, they may not actively promote or provide abortion. Let me be clear, the United States is not investing a dollar less in global health assistance. Protecting life and global health assistance just ensures that every dollar actually goes toward expanding the culture of life through improved health for people around the world. And not one taxpayer dollar goes toward the culture of death. But while protecting life and global health assistance provides accountability for US foreign health assistance funds, it does nothing to push back against the accelerated and unrelenting effort by the UN and other international organizations to falsely assert abortion as an international human right. That's why with the full support of the president, HHS Secretary Azar commissioned the inauguration of protecting life in global health policy to build a global coalition of countries to stand in solidarity on the promotion of women's health, the family as foundational to any healthy society, and the sovereign right of countries to defend innocent life through their pro-life laws. I'm honored to lead this all of government effort where we can amplify together the importance of these pillars. Last year, 24 countries signed on to at least one joint statement with the US at the World Health Assembly and at the UN representing more than a billion people. And in 2020, in just a few short weeks, Secretary Azar and Secretary Pompeo are co-hosting the ceremonial signing of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, led by the US, Brazil, Egypt, Hungary, Indonesia, and Uganda, and co-signed by a number of other countries, pledging ourselves to work together until we can claim victory surrounding these priorities at the UN, at WHA, and elsewhere. This is important. This is critical for women's thriving. It is fundamental to the flourishing of our societies. The fact of the matter is that principled pro-life policies and the provision of quality healthcare for women and girls around the world do not conflict. We can and we are doing both of these things at once and we will continue to do so as long as we are able. Seeking consensus with other countries and eager to stand with like-minded countries, but willing to stand alone if necessary, without apology. I have to say that in almost every meeting I have with other countries who value these pillars, they express such appreciation for the Trump administration's leadership on these issues. They also share how much they hope we more have more time to work together on these issues of great consequence. Of course, we share that great hope as well. 
because we recognize that we are indeed stronger together and we must win for the sake of women everywhere, born and unborn. Thank you, Valerie. Uh, I'd like to um, kick off the question and answer portion by following up, Valerie, on what you just said. Um, several of you have mentioned, um, especially Rebecca at the beginning, about this effort to create an international right to abortion or to insist that such a right already exists. Uh, Valerie, I'm hoping you can speak to us about what the ramifications would be um, for women and really for the whole world if abortion were to be deemed an international human right. Well, that's a very good question. And of course, we are tremendously concerned about that because think about it. If an international right to abortion was adopted as a fundamental human right, and this is what is aggressively being pushed, any country that has any abortion restrictions could be deemed a human rights violator. And you can imagine the amount of pressure, the threats to cut funding for aid-dependent countries, and the attacks that would increase against core foundational principles of these countries. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable. The, the countries representing every region of the world uniting is really critical because we can then say in unison, not on our watch, because we recognize that this is gravely important. This is not political. This is really the life and thriving of our nations and our people. Rebecca, did you wanna add anything to that or? No, I, I would echo what she said. Um, I mean, certainly, we need to keep a close eye on what's going on with the international human rights discourse. I think uh, Secretary Pompeo's work on the Unalienable Rights uh, Commission has been very helpful in that. Um, also, we need to keep an eye on the human humanitarian front, which is, you know, also um, an area where the abortion lobby has been has been moving. Well, the follow-up question then I would ask to first Rebecca and then anybody else who who has an opinion. Um, you know, we hear as UN observers that every country is supposed to have an equal voice and one vote at the, the UN. Um, as my question is, if this is the case, how come some countries seem to be able to be intimidated into silence, particularly on these issues around women's health and abortion? Well, one thing I can say to that is that the in the General Assembly, everyone has one vote. But when it comes to the work that the agencies do, a lot of it depends on the agendas that are set by the large donors. And many of the countries that are the greatest donors to the UN system, apart from the US, certainly in the EU, are very, they're driving this agenda very hard and they're doing it through the agencies. Uh, a lot of the reports that you'll see promoting this are funded directly by them. And so, you know, where there's money, there's power. And a lot of, you know, they have a lot of leverage with a lot of countries that are receiving aid, both through the UN system and directly from them. And so we have to be aware of that. And so for the US to show leadership and really provide support, um, for these countries to hold their ground is, is very critical. Could I add just a, one little piece onto that? Um, Grace, I totally agree with what Rebecca just said. I can't tell you the number of diplomats who have pulled me aside and told me about how oppressive the atmosphere is during some of these negotiations if they dare to speak up for the core principles of their own countries how disrespected they are, how cavalier oftentimes the attitude is. I mean, this is unacceptable. Um, some countries have told me about 
uh, UN officials or other countries actually flying to their capitals and reporting their diplomats as being too outspoken on these issues and saying if they don't quiet down, they need to be recalled to their own home countries, threatening support if they don't either, either if they either change, unless they either change their policies or stay quiet on their national core principles. These are things that should not happen in this multilateral space where everyone should have an equal voice, but they are taking place and it is, um, it's totally unacceptable. Well, Anne, I was uh, would like to ask you what your experience has been of the protecting life and global health assistance policy that Valerie described earlier, and if you think it's been beneficial to African countries. Thank you, Grace. First, I would like to appreciate the Trump administration, and I would like Valerie to hear this because what they have done with this policy is to help the African women. I like what has been out there by pro-abortion advocates that uh, uh, the policy is affecting the delivery of healthcare in Africa. This policy has come to help us and it, is, it has given us, especially the pro-life champions, a very easy time. Because as you know, uh, United States is very uh, important in the world and they, they have a lot of funds. So I, I could imagine if the funds that uh, were put through before uh, in, the in the Obama administration were still existent today, the kind of uh, activity we could be having right now. So uh, I, I would really like to say that the policy has come to help us as African women because uh, it is le lessening or actually lowering the financial influence of the abortion advocates who are here to change and to overturn our very pro-life laws. Thank you. Well, Sister Didi, I was wondering if you could tell us about, in, in your experience as a doctor treating women all over the world, what sort of medical and health needs do you think are the most pressing for women that you've encountered? I think that ex access to health care is really tough in the areas where I worked. Bishop Gassis of uh, Sudan, who from the LLA Diocese, opened up a beautiful hospital, a couple of them in the Nuba Mountain, which uh, change the, the quality of life and people would travel for days and many of the problems are obstetrical you know poor prenatal care Tom Katina who's a, an American doctor who's received many awards is now there at that Nuva Mountain Hospital and he's created because he's found a practice train he's created a really nice setup there and the same is in where I worked in in Iraq in Erbil where Archbishop Warda has built a brand new beautiful hospital to serve many of the internally displaced and the refugees that have been brought in from Syria just to just give upscaled health care. You know, so access to health care for both men and women, prenatal care for women, for children, uh, the usual malaria and diarrhea diseases that we see rampant from hygiene, lack of hygiene, lack of clean water. Some of the basic things that, you know, Anne could probably echo what I'm saying, or she she's lives there and could say more than I can, but just basically the basic things that we all take for granted when we turn on the water to get clean water. Um, so prenatal care, I would say the number one for women. Well, 
following up on that, I think um, a lot of us hear from the UN and donor organizations that there's this unmet need for contraception. Rebecca, I know you've done a lot of research on that subject. I was wondering if you could tell us about your findings and is there really an unmet need? Sure. Well, so the concept of unmet need for family planning is basically a policy construct that is often misconstrued as being a lack of access to contraceptives or a desire to use them for women who can't. In fact, it is neither of those things. It is basically women who are not currently using a method and would prefer all other things being equal not to become pregnant right away. No part of that involves them saying they either can't get it or want it. And unfortunately, this is uh, often misconstrued as lack of access. You know, the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, has made making uh, unmet, eliminating all unmet need as one of their top three goals. What in reality, this would be impossible to do without a mass violation of women's human rights, because many of them, the reason they're not using a method of family planning is because they have concerns about side effects or they have religious objections or other reasons. Uh, according to the Guttmacher Institute, uh, only about 5% of so-called unmet need is actually attributable to lack of access when you ask women why they're not currently using a method. And so this is you know, certainly directing a lot of money and effort toward family planning groups. And of course, we hear that if you give women family planning, there'll be fewer maternal deaths. But you know, as Sister Didi said, you can't contracept your way to good maternal health when the reasons why women are dying is that they lack access, but not to family planning, but to things like electricity, water, and good medical care. So um, this is another place where the, the reproductive health agenda ends up actually undermining women's uh, rights and, and their best, um, the services that they really need. Well, I'd like to ask one more question of my own before turning it over to the, the audience questions. We're getting a number of them coming in. Um, but Anne, you, you mentioned earlier that there are several countries in Africa. I know Malawi, Kenya, and Namibia are all under pressure to legalize abortion now. Can you tell us a bit about that and what you expect will happen? Thank you, Grace. Yes, like I mentioned in my opening remarks, there's a real scramble for Africa. And basically, it's about overturning the, uh, the pro-life laws that are present here in Africa. Here in Kenya, we have a bill that is uh, called the Sexual and Productive Health Rights Bill, and uh, it has been met with a lot of resistance from Africans, I mean, from Kenyans especially, and um, right now it has been stopped because of the outcry, uh, the outrage it has caused. It is going to be offering legal abortion on demand if it is passed. But uh, as it is right now, it is stopped because Kenyans have spoken and they have said they don't want this bill. Clearly sponsored by uh, Western countries, including um, some organizations, IPAS. And how it works here in Africa is that these international uh, organizations that include UNFPA, UNESCO, UNICEF, IPAS, IPPF, they have formed a coalition. So once they start uh, sponsoring a bill, they're in it together. And they have done this in a number of countries. So we are fighting battles. Kenya, Malawi, uh, the Malawi bill is called uh, the Termination of Pregnancy Bill of 2020. Namibia has uh, a motion that they have put in, in, in parliament and it is called the Abortion uh, Bill Motion in Namibia. And in Ghana, it's also happening. So it's a, uh, it's a battle that cuts across Africa, and like I mentioned, 
the aim is to overturn the for-life laws we have. So basically, my question still remains. Why the, does uh, all these international uh, bodies that are well-funded, why do they concentrate on the wrong things? Uh, like Sister saying, we need clean water. If you look carefully, my teeth have fluorine. It's because we have been taking salted water since I was a child. So many uh, of our Kenyan, Kenyan children are, have this kind of problem, having the wrong water that they are taking. Hospitals are not available full time. And if they are there, they don't have the equipment. Why can't these Western countries why can't these very well-funded international agencies see this instead of prioritizing the wrong things? And this is the battle we are fighting here, and we hope that one day it can stop. Because basically, uh, like we have seen, the resistance is real. Uh, Kenya has fought. Malawi uh, has stood firm today. I saw that over 89% of the members of, of uh, assembly in Malawi have uh, vowed to reject the bill that is sponsored by IPAS and uh, some so this is the battle we have and we hope that one day we should have because uh, I don't see Africa returning from Washington. Just real quickly, you know, the, the whole procedure, God forbid, I've never had to do, uh, but I can imagine the procedure for terminating pregnancy is, is not a low risk, it's a high risk. So I just envision the levels of it, intrauterine infections, perforation of the uterus, all sorts of complications in some small obscure clinic that would be trying to, maybe for a financial gains, do this procedure. I think we'd be seeing a lot of natal, pre, prenatal and maternal deaths rise. I don't know, Anne, if you would agree or not, but it's a big disaster for many reasons. Thank you, sister. Yeah, um, and just, if I, can, if I can add on what sister said, uh, with all these complications that go with abortion, these international agencies that are pushing for abortion here, they don't tell us the effects of abortion. I've seen women that are hurt by abortion, and we are not told about the effects of abortion, the effects of contraceptives and sexualization of our children. So this is something that they're not telling us when they come here. Uh, somehow, I think the whole uh, abortion agenda is, some, uh, is benefiting some people, and it's a business for some people, and this is all about them, not about us. Well, here's an, another question I have from a viewer. Has anyone tried using telehealth to bring pro-life, pro-family health to vulnerable and underserved populations? And do you think that would be effective? I use telehealth. I've used it. When I'm in far off places, I haven't used it for the, I've used it for many surgical problems. Because when I'm up in Snuba, for example, and I need a neurosurgeon, I look in the mirror. Or if I need an orthopedic surgeon, I look in the mirror. Or if I need a pediatrician, I look in the mirror, and that's because there's usually just one physician up there. So I've had some, I'm really blessed to have some really brilliant friends who know a lot more than I do. And with the internet, it has brought improved healthcare to these far off places. So I could see this being a wonderful way to promote the culture of life in these areas that are far off. Thank you, sister. Another question. Um, Maybe Valerie, you can can answer this one. Uh, if countries are being pulled toward a pro-abortion agenda due to resources, um, can the same be done from a pro-life position? Can can pro-life countries or pro-life organizations offer similar resources that better align with their country values? 
excellent question, excellent strategy. The, the reality is that um, pro-abortion groups are very good at working together, very good at strategizing, going inside countries, working from the inside and working from the outside in. Um, Pro-life organizations and um, entities are busy doing the work that they are called to work and often don't think that way. I think there is a sense that this needs to this needs to be done. Of course, I can't speak for them. Maybe Anne and Rebecca would have something more to add. Well, certainly, I, I can just say, um, you know, I think that for those of us in the United States, we often don't pay a whole lot of attention to what's going on at the UN because we are not downstream of UN policy in the way that a lot of developing countries are. Uh, we have you know, we mostly have our own government, our own state governments, and, you know, and so I think, you know, to the extent that a lot of people in the U.S. aren't following what's going on at the U.N., it, it's not that the people don't have goodwill or that they don't want to promote life in the world. They just aren't necessarily aware of how deeply entrenched the pro-abortion lobby is, and so getting the word out and, and getting people informed is, is very important. Well, I think we have time just for one more quick quick question. Um, this one is for Anne. Um, and in your opinion, does Africa need the United Nations? Well, with the current misplaced priorities, we will do without them. But if they got our priorities right, maybe we can have them. And this is my view um, as, as now because of the kind of battles we are facing every day because of the UN agencies. They're supposed to be our saviors, but what they are doing here is to deconstruct our culture, turning the culture of life we have here to culture of death, sexualizing our children through comprehensive sexuality education, offering contraception to our young people as a way of family planning. And uh, this is not what we expect them to be doing here. Um, like I've repeatedly said in, the, said in this session, we could do better if we had better roads, better hospitals, clean water, uh, stable electricity, um, there's so, so much that we can offer Africa apart from abortion and killing of our babies. I guess well, I could also just jump in very quickly and say that the UN needs Africa, <laughs> perhaps even more than Africa needs the UN. Um, you know, the largest geopolitical voting bloc in the UN is the African Union. And when they can agree on a pro-life position, that is a very powerful voice for the rest of the world. And, you know, this agenda is not only being foisted on, on developing countries. Um, I have a, a forthcoming white paper about how um, the UN uh, treaty bodies are pushing for countries to restrict the conscience rights of health workers in countries where abortion may already be legal so that people can't opt out from performing or assisting in abortions. So they're, they're not just coming for the developing countries or the countries with strong pro-life laws. We all need to be paying attention. Thank you, Rebecca. That's a very good reminder. Um, well, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for sharing their insights on failures of radical feminism at the United Nations, pro-life women respond, and thank our audience for joining us for this important conversation. If you work on the Hill at a think tank or just have questions, please contact me using the information listed on the screen. I'd love to continue the conversation. Immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring you ideas that you care about to the public square. To see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. Again, thank you and have a great day.